It, it had like five different titles. Yeah, it had like five different Welcome titles. Welcome to late but... 70s exploitation, people. Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley. You are listening to Radio Drome. With me, as always, is Cecil. Did not die from nerd flu at Pax Trachtenberg. Well, I guess I'm not with you always, but I'm I'm with you now. You're with me in spirit. I am with you in spirit. Yes. See, there you go. Peter's not going to be here because we're not recording this on our normal night because. Cecil was not going to be here when we recorded this episode, so Peter and I tried, but then there were lots of technical problems, and we had to reschedule for this night, which means Peter couldn't make it, but Cecil could, so yay? Huzzoy. What you guys need to do is go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free Power O-Ring, free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight, we, we have a special guest later on. We're going to look at the career of Bill Lustig. Now, Bill Lustig, he's only credited with about nine to ten features, depending on how you want to deal with credited, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Yet, he has made such an impact. Bill Lustig is one of those directors that he has, and you'll hear in the interview, I say he has, and I mean this absolutely as a compliment, he has a very dirty, grimy style to him that you're like, wow, this is a Bill Lustig film. Yeah, it feels very at home in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's that, as you said, it's the gritty, grimy look. It's just that feel that he has to it. And it's something that is sadly missing from a lot of movies today. They don't have that. They don't have that edge to it where it just has that really distinct, dirty look. Everything now is a little too clean. It's edited too, too nicely and, uh, everything is too color corrected. And back then it was just wet and nasty and it looked like the entire movie was shot in an alleyway bill did not start out like that though you know like most people bill lustig started his career in porn like most directors coming up in the 70s you started out of new york in porn you might not know it because this was not bill lustig this was billy bag with two g's he started out as just a production assistant on 1973's Hypnorotica, which, by the way, is a fantastic title. He would be an apprentice editor on the original Death Wish, which is awesome. And then he would end up directing, under the Billy Bag title, the hardcore films The Violation of Claudia and Hot Honey. It's kind of telling that he came up through porn like so many 70s directors, huh? You can almost kind of see that in the style he would bring to his 80s movies. That was the thing, like, you... Indie, indie directors and whatnot kind of cut their teeth on porn. That was where you could go and learn. And if you didn't have Hollywood connections, you could get in there and learn a lot about your craft. And then you would make a smaller movie that would get a 
attention, and then you would kind of move on from there. So it really wasn't uh, a bad thing. I mean, it was, I mean, they, they did it under the pseudonym because once they got out of that, they didn't want to, uh, oh God, he directed porn. But, uh, so that was still like shunned upon by the general public. But most of the people in the industry like didn't really care. I mean, it was just a, it was another job really. Well, I mean, hell, Orson Welles worked on a porn. He worked on the porn movie 3 a.m. that Gary Graver directed. You know, Gary mm-hmm. Graver directed somewhere because of he used multiple pseudonyms. So with Gary, it's a little harder to nail down exactly how many. But it's estimated he made over a 100 porn films under pseudonyms. And he would bring Orson Welles with him to the set and kind of help him. Hey, you got to start somewhere. This was after he was an established Hollywood DP. This was just, I shouldn't say DP, director of photography. <laughs> But, you know, it, this was, you, you need work, because back then, you remember, Hollywood only made, you know, like a studio would only make a couple of movies a year. It's not like today, where you can get constant work. You might make a movie for three months, and then have three months of nothing. Well, there's a porno movie shooting down the street. Still got to pay your rent, right? I mean, quick and easy. Uh, you know, you get to see, uh, you know, people doing it for a while. I mean, it's uh, it's a job. It's uh, Now, granted, there is a lot more... Especially in the 70s, there was a lot more uh, open availability of drugs, so that's not necessarily a good thing if you're an addictive personality. But uh, if you're looking for a quick and easy paycheck and, uh, you know, you don't mind uh, being around a a sweaty, uh, disgusting crew for a while, then uh, you're good. So Bill, after being Billy Bag for a couple of years, went on to direct what would end up being, I, I would say, almost his most famous film, you know, even more than Maniac Cop, which we did a whole retrospective on, and that would be 1980s Maniac with Joe Spinell. You are about to face the screen's most horrifying challenge. I see something. You are about to face... <laughs> Maniac. Tonight won't be like other nights. Tonight, a madman's out there, and you will know horror more real than you could ever imagine. Maniac. He'll tear the life out of you. An analysis film's release. No one under 17 admitted. That movie is just, it's so hardcore. It's so, and I mean this in a positive again, it's so 1980, isn't it? It's coming in right around it's it's clearly not influenced by Friday the 13th or Halloween which would be the big slasher movies it is a slasher movie but it's a lot more psychological because this is one guy and you know Caroline Monroe they have a true relationship but yet even though Joe Spinell is when you're watching it from an audience perspective clearly f- nuts but you go okay i see i can suspend that for the movie it's a very psychological movie that's also hardcore as hell yeah maniac is is something else maniac is one of the most brutal just uh, hardcore slasher films there's no it's not that i want to say there's no redeeming qualities to it because there is but what i mean is that there's no it's bleak it's so bleak there you go yeah it's just it's very bleak and and just depressing and again dirty and grimy and uh very much deserves 
a higher place as far as when people talk about slashers. And like, I love Friday the 13th. I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I love uh, Halloween. But Maniac really does deserve to be mentioned in that grouping. The only thing is, is that there was one and then there was the remake. So it doesn't quite have the the large library to go along with it. But it still deserves to be you know mentioned with those. It's It's just a great, very, very unique, very bleak movie. Now, personally, I did not like the remake, but Bill Lustig, executive, produced that. So, you know, he clearly endorsed it by executive producing it. I was not a fan of the remake. I, I thought I didn't like the, the gimmick of it, but it, it just could not capture the power that the first film has. And the first film, of course, grabbed the ire of Siskel and Ebert and the whole the whole slasher movie pushback later on, possibly due to, I don't want to use the word misogynistic, but it's a very, women are not treated very well in this movie film. Well, okay, for, first of all, I actually really like the remake. Uh, it's one that I thought they, they did uh, a unique enough spin, and it felt it's one where you could watch the two movies and feel like you're getting two different experiences. I thought that uh, Elijah Wood was just phenomenal in uh, in the remake. Being misogynistic, well, yeah, it's it's a guy scalping women. I mean, it's it's not indicative of saying that uh, this is okay. It's very obvious that, like, this is not okay. But it's what the character is, and that's one of my biggest problems with just stuff in general nowadays, is that nobody's looking at it from the perspective of, you're not supposed to be rooting for this guy. He's the bad guy, and he's doing bad things. And in this movie, he particularly, he happens to be doing bad things to women because of the whole backstory of him and his mother and all that. So that is why he's doing that. I mean, should we, should we badmouth Psycho? Because, you know, Norman Bates puts on uh, a wig and stabs women in the shower. It's he's the bad guy. And yet, just like Psycho, though, they do a great job of making you almost sympathize with them. You actually want Spinell and Monroe to, to click in this. But you know that you shouldn't be rooting for him. Well, that's like the sign of a very well-written movie. Is that's that... what I mean. I'm Yes, absolutely. That you're, you're looking at it from the perspective that you, you are getting some elements of compassion for this character who is awful. <laughs> you know, the whole misogyny claims are also kind of bullshit with the fact that he kills just as many men in the film too. They only, he only scalps the women, so they're only nit, they're nitpicking on, well, he kills women too, so it's gotta be misogyny, right? Well, that's, you know, it's the world we live in currently. Well, then Bill would go on to Vigilante in 1983. I don't know about you guys, but me, I've had it up to here. There are some 40 odd homicides a day on our streets. There are over two million illegal guns in this city. Man, that's enough guns to invade a whole damn country with. They shoot a cop in our city without even thinking twice about it. Oh, come on. I mean, you guys ride the subway. How much more of this grief we're gonna stand for? How many more locks we gotta put on our goddamn doors? Now, we ain't got the police, the prosecutors, the courts, or the prisons. It's over. The books don't balance. We are a statistic. You know, I'm telling you. When you 
you can't go to the corner and buy a pack of cigarettes after dark because you know the punks and the scum on the street when the sun goes down and our own government can't protect its own people, then I say this, pal. You got a moral obligation, the right of self-preservation. Now you can run, you can hide, or you can start to live like human beings again. This is our Waterloo, baby. Do you want your city back? Dig it. Take it. Vigilante is a film. I haven't seen it in 20 plus years, so I'm going off memory. I remember Robert Forster and Fred Williamson being freaking great in this movie. I remember the movie itself being a little ridiculous in the whole, yeah, this doesn't take place in the real world, but it still had Lustig's gritty realism to it. Took a break. And then Maniac Cop comes out in 1988. I don't want to spend too much time on the Maniac Cop movie since we already did a whole retrospective of that last year. Maniac Cop, again, his style is very much all over Maniac Cop. And you've got a pretty famous Bruce Campbell starring in the movie. I mean, he'd already made Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, but he wasn't the name Bruce Campbell yet. You got Robert Zadar, you got Tom Atkins kicking ass, you got Lorene Landon, slightly out of her depth acting, but not terrible. Maniac Cop's a fantastic film. Love Maniac Cop. Uh, as we were talking before we started recording, uh, love Maniac Cop 2 better, but uh, Maniac Cop is uh, is awesome. And I also, I kind of saw them backwards. I saw 2, 3, 1. So that may also factor into my uh, my liking of it, and it was it was kind of weird to see you know Robert Zadar b- before he was all you know had the had the the makeup on and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's just a really good unique slasher film, just cool because um they did have a, a neat spin where you really uh with the first one you weren't sure who was the killer and you weren't sure if you know maybe it was bruce campbell and they kind of hinted with some different things and it had a neat little twists and turns and uh it's uh it's cool i actually um i'm going to do uh videos on all three of them uh, eventually i uh i like uh i like the maniac cop series a lot well then did you ever see the follow-up film the hit list which i mean okay first of all look at this cast list you got jan michael vincent leo Rossi, who Lustig would work with many more times in the in the future. Lance Henriksen, Charles Napier, Rip Torn, Jury Burns. It's been said there is no mob. Would you describe in detail just what it was you did for Mr. Newman? Whatever he wanted. Nailing. That there is justice in America. It's taken me three years to get Vic Luca in front of a grand jury. You gonna help me nail this guy? That a witness and his family can be protected. If somebody makes me unhappy, I send for you. You take good care of that kid, because he's my life insurance. It's all a lie. Hit list. He was the mob's next target. But he wasn't going to be their next victim. Hit list. It's a cop movie that is not a cop movie. It's it's the mob tried to silence a witness. So it's a professional killers versus the cops kind of movie. And again, I'm going off 20 years ago. I remember it being pretty damn good. But this one, it doesn't feel as lustig. It doesn't have it as dirty of a feel to it. 
you'll notice when Lustig does a straight-up action movie, he does it in a different style than he does his horror movies. And I think that is what a good director does. That he he's, he's not making an action movie that feels like a horror film, like Maniac and Maniac Cop, making, now I'm making an action movie. So his style changes. And then he goes to Relentless. Now, Relentless is a film, I know Peter loves this movie. And I think Judd Nelson is fantastic in this movie. And Bill pulls a little bit of a rug out from under us with uh, Relentless. He casts Meg Foster as a good guy, and she never betrays anybody. And you really just, whatever she does that, it throws you off, because it's like, Meg Foster's always a bad guy. Yeah, Relentless is terrific. Relentless was one of the movies that, and uh From the Hip, and, uh, like, now From the Hip was more of a um, courtroom comedy. Like, it was Judd Nelson doing different things, and I really think that he should have been bigger. I liked how he was doing these different roles and things that were well out of his comfort zone and was just very good in them. And he never quite got the attention that a lot of other uh, actors did. And I think uh, he joined, I think it was Suddenly Susan. Like, I think kind of when he when he joined that show and that show went on for a long time, that really kneecapped him becoming a bigger movie star because uh, he was doing that uh, show and he kind of got typecast as that character. I think that uh, he was phenomenal in that, and I'm kind of sad that uh, he didn't blow up as big as he probably should have. But yeah, and then Meg Foster. Yeah, the whole movie, you're you're just, you're waiting. You're like, all right, when when, when is she going to do something evil? And it was like, and that was great. And and uh, it was it probably one of the few movies where uh, Meg Foster was actually like good, good. Best of the best, too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That was another one of those rare ones where where, where you expect her to, like, you know, end up with Brackus, and she's like, no, she's actually the the dutiful girlfriend the whole time, and you're like, well, shit. And there was also that one, uh, the one, God, when she was, like, 19. The, um, the, the, The one about the cannibals wanted to eat her flesh one? The, oh God. yeah, yeah, the one, uh, it had a really long title. It, it had like five different titles. Yeah, it had like five different Welcome titles. Welcome to late but... 70s exploitation, people. Exactly. Let's, you know, rename it and re-release it. But yeah, 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 that, that one too. But that was, you know, she was just straight up playing the damsel in distress. And she was so, so gorgeous in that movie too. She, I had, um, I kind of found that. She got naked in that year, one too. She did get naked in that one. It was very nice found that one you know years years later uh after i had already seen her and like they live and stuff she just like her eyes were even more prominent back then like uh she just will always have that that look she's just that is just stunning like now i mean i i saw her in um 31 and which you know she was completely wasted in but then everybody was wasted in that movie she still has those eyes she's just they're just stunning like if i was ever to meet her i don't think i would be able to function properly just because she looks like she's staring through you so then bill goes off and he makes maniac cop 2 and maniac cop 3 or i should say he makes half of maniac cop 3 as we talked about in the retrospective he just kind of like you know they're all the production problems and in the interview that you're going to hear in a in a few minutes he goes into some of those and yeah they're he's never even seen the full released cut yet that's how much maniac cop 3 is 
is just like, you know, I, no, I, I can't do this. And I, I believe Maniac Cop 2 is the best film in the franchise. I love the first Maniac Cop, but I think 2 is the better film, and I don't think 3 is a bad movie. So, but since we did a retrospective on that, I don't want to talk about those. And then he did The Expert in 1995. Not that you'd know it. He had his name taken off of The Expert. I'm just going to go into the interview with him where we talk about his whole career. You'll find out why his name was removed from The Expert. You started out not even using your real name. You were Billy Bag at first. When the, the first credited movie with, with you was Maniac, and that was a pretty big success. How did that feel having what would arguably be your most famous movie that big at, in 1980? I mean, it was one of the first mixed in, uh, it, it was mixed in stereo, wasn't it? For one of the first yeah. films? Yeah, no, it was, um, it, at that time, the only films that were mixed in stereo were the big tentpole movies like Star Wars. They weren't even called tentpoles then. And, uh, you know, Close Encounters and movies like that. But it was actually, the reason it was mixed in stereo is, um, when you have no money and you're, and you're trying to finish your movie, you're best going to successful sound studios and look to try to see if you can get some deferred time, meaning you, you take time that's downtime on other projects that they're doing and you go in at their, at their whim. You don't set your own time and then they defer the cost of the studio time. And it just so happened that I, I was able to get into their A studio, which was the only studio at that time in New York that had Dolby Stereo. So I took advantage of it and mixed the movie in Dolby Stereo. No, I remember the critics, especially like Siskel and Ebert, being ex- ironically enough ruthless against the film. How did how did that make you feel with this being your first big movie and the critics not liking it despite its box office success? Well, I had no expectations of being a critic darling, you know. I I just, uh, I made the film for people. I made it as a commercial venture to be played, you know, with, with uh, you know, for the, uh, for the blue-collar audience. It wasn't intended to be a critic's movie. If I got a good review, it was actually more of a surprise than getting a bad one. Nowadays, do you look at it differently now that Maniac is considered such a, a seminal film now? Well, what's interesting is, if you look at the early reviews of all of the classic horror films, I'm including, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Halloween, you'll really find that most of these movies, there sometimes there was like a single critic. Like in the case of Night of the Living Dead, Rex Reed, I remember being his champion, but he was like, he was like the, the sole voice amongst the critics who saw the greatness of that movie. But often it's just, you, you, everybody gives these movies, they dump on them when they first come out. And then it's later when they hang around for a while, they suddenly start getting the critics to kind of look at them a second time and certainly more favorable. Did you ever think that Maniac would come out in like a big special edition and now be hailed as such a classic? In 1980, was that ever even in your head? No, but it wasn't in my head. But the one person who did believe in it and and that we were making a classic was Joe Spinell. And he constantly would tell me. And I would kind of laugh it off because I said, we're lucky we play 42nd Street in Texas driving. But he was right. He was right. It, It did become a classic. 
Then why did it take another three years to have Vigilante come out? Because Vigilante is a film I remember seeing constantly on UHF television, and I remember really, really liking the movie. Maniac came out in the States January of 81, and we started shooting Vigilante in the fall of 81. So there wasn't a lot of time between movies, and then uh, Vigilante came out in the, in the winter of 83. Because and I remember when I remember when Maniac Cop came out. I I was still too young to see it at that time. I remember seeing it on HBO or something like that, and I didn't know who this Bruce Campbell guy or this Robert Zadar was or, or even Tom Atkins. We did a full Maniac Cop retrospective on the show last year. I love the first film, but I think Maniac Cop 2 is the strongest film in that franchise, personally. I think it's the most well-rounded. It works the best. I love the way you use the lighting. I, I think Maniac Cop 2 is the superior film. That's not to crap on Maniac Cop. Well, I would agree. I think Maniac Cop 2 is a better film. And it's um, it was a good script, first and foremost. You can't make a good film from a lousy script. It was a good script that Larry wrote. It was... Uh, I felt as though I had the, the I had felt that the, the maniac cop concept had kind of gelled in my head when I did the first movie. I was sort of finding the movie as I was shooting it. I hadn't really had a firm grasp of of the of, of the character of Matt Cordell. I was I, I and so when I did the second one, I committed to his character being a kind of a zombie. A cop who's come back from the dead. And so uh, once I committed to that, it made it easier to make the picture. Well, it's a movie that has more depth to it than you would notice on the surface. For instance, it wasn't until I heard your commentary track that I actually picked up on the, the whole Ghost of Frankenstein thing, and I saw, that really, really works. Well, it was actually Son of Frankenstein. Son but, of Frankenstein, um, sorry, it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I... What I loved about Maniac Cop 2 in my mind is, again, I saw it as a, as a kind of a, 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 a collage of all these genres from, you know, I looked at like Robert Davi being a character like, uh, Robert Mitchum at, um, I, I thought, I, with Robert Davi, I told him, you're Robert Mitchum in, in On Dangerous Ground. That was the character for me. And with Leo Rossi, I looked at him as being Bela Lugosi and Son of Frankenstein. Obviously, you're not going to have a guy with a Hungarian accent. So what, what, what Leo did was give it a white trash twist. So he became Bela Lugosi with a white trash accent. Now, with Maniac Cop 2, was it always intended to be sort of a rug pulling out by killing Bruce Campbell 10 minutes into the movie? Or was that mainly based on Bruce's availability at the time? No, no, it was intended to be that because Larry and I both felt we had taken Lorene Landon and Bruce Campbell as far as we could. After that, it starts to, it, it, it becomes less interesting because we had already, we, we felt already fully explored those characters. So it was, it was nice to introduce new characters and follow them. Was it your choice to do the marketing and still have it kind of sold as a Bruce Campbell movie, even though he dies 10 minutes in? Well, I don't think we ever sold it as a Bruce Campbell movie. I mean, his credit, he's like, I think he's like maybe fourth build, fifth build. In the, in the trailer, though, it's, you know, and starring Evil Dead's Bruce Campbell. And I, I was just kind of like, well, you know, not funny, really. I, yeah, can I tell you something? That was the, I, I listened to your podcast about Maniac Cop, the link you sent me. And I heard that for the very first time. 
It, I had never heard that trailer or TV, or was it a trailer or radio spot? It, the, uh, that that was the trailer that that's actually on the DVD. And so I it thought is? that was just a little like, well, they're kind of selling this as a Bruce Campbell movie, but it's not really one. I have honestly, it's on the DVD. Which DVD is it? The one I put out or the one that's Alchemy? Uh, I bought it a couple of years ago, so I, I think it's the older DVD. Yeah, because that that one I've never seen. Okay, um, I just thought that was odd that it was kind of like, I, I get it if you're trying to pull the rug out from under us and kind yeah. of send this nobody well, safe thing, but then if you go into this thinking it's a Bruce Campbell movie, you're going to be pissed off. Well, I apologize, but I had nothing to do with that trailer, and the first time I actually heard it was uh the other day when I listened to your podcast. I can assure you that no other trailers or posters that I've ever seen or been involved with overblow Bruce's uh, participation. Uh, and then we come to Maniac Cop 3, which I know is kind of an aborted film. Now, I don't hate the movie. It's clearly got lots of problems, and it's the weakest of the three. I, I know you have kind of washed your hands of Maniac Cop 3. Well, I mean, it's, it's look, um, it's, it, was a, it was a difficult situation. Larry had written a full-blown script, which had a different lead, Suddenly, within weeks of shooting the film, we were already in pre-production. The, the horse had left the barn. The foreign sales agent on the film said, look, I can't close a deal for Japan, which was a big amount of money. It was a big part of the budget for Japan because the lead is a black man. He said he tried every way he could. Suddenly, it, it, it was determined to bring back Robert Davi, but the script really didn't fit Robert Davi. So we were kind of making up a script. I mean, once we edited the script and took out everything involving what Larry had originally written involving this other character, it uh, it turned out to be like a 50-page script. Not even. You know, it was like maybe 50, 60 pages. It was ridiculous. Half the script was gone. And suddenly things had to be made up to pan out the movie. And so it was a very, very difficult situation. And by the way, I thought it was unfair when I heard you say about Larry, about him, you know, quitting the movie. It, the fact of the matter is, Larry had written the script as agreed to and as contracted and paid for. It was, it was, it was, it was the decision to basically gut the script by the financier in order that he can sell the movie better. And Larry, was like, well, why should I go and write a second script for no pay? And I don't think anybody would find that to be unfair. I, I don't either, and I, I've always liked Larry's work. I was just go, I was going off the documentary that's on the Maniac Cop Three DVD. Well, yeah, and maybe it it I don't yeah, but I don't it it was maybe not clear. Okay, but when, which, which is what fair. Joel said in the documentary was totally true that Larry said, okay, take out a pen, I'll dictate the changes. But, you know, Larry was did that because he was annoyed that he had written, gone and spent the time and effort to write a script that now was being totally gutted. I mean, it was for the reasons of getting the film made. Creatively, it, was, it made no sense. And so here I was directing a movie that I was contractually obliged to do uh, because my name was part of the pre-sales of the movie that I that uh, that I didn't have a script. I was we were kind of making it up as we went along. <laughs> you know, that's really the worst thing to do in making a movie. 
It was the total opposite of making Maniac Cop 1 and 2. Add to this all the people involved, which was a lot more people that were, you know, I mean, Maniac Cop 1 and 2, I produced and directed the movies. Even though it says Larry's name is producer, Larry had nothing to do with the producing. I produced and directed Maniac Cop 1 and 2. So it's a lot easier and you have a lot more control when you do that. Here I was trying to make up a movie and I had three producers, I had a financier, I had, it was just like a, it was a, a, a total clusterfuck. Everybody was professional, everybody was well-intended, I hold, I hold no ill will towards anyone, but it was really, um, it was not the way to make a movie. What we should have done was shut the film down and just write a new script. That's what needed to happen. But everybody, you know, wanted to go forward, including myself. I'm, I'm as much to blame. And um, and the result was really just sort of a made-up movie. Well, for years, Robert Zadar was kind of joking with fans about a Maniac Cop 4. Was that ever a possibility, or after what happened with 3, were you kind of done? Yeah, I would say after 3, I was I was done. I felt burnt out. I, I, I just felt a real sour taste in my mouth. And, you know, I just really didn't want to returned to doing a maniac cop movie i i really felt i had done a good job on one and two and three was such a disappointment i don't even know if i've seen the whole movie to tell you the truth i've seen i think i've seen a, lar a large portion of it but i never really saw the whole movie i just don't relate to it well after your experiences on it that completely makes sense you you have a different perspective than someone like me who when i first saw this movie was my senior year of high school and uh -huh. i didn't know any of the behind the scenes and i was no, like and, and it's not great you... but it's good well i mean i think i heard you mention that we kind of ran out of gas towards the end but the truth of the matter is where the padding on the movie like the first 20 15 20 minutes of the movie none of that footage i had anything to do with my footage, the, actually the day I parted ways was the opening scene in the, in the gun range. That was the day, I'll never forget it, being handed the pages. And I look at Joel Swanson and I say, Joel, look, why don't you just direct this? I, I really, this is not for me. I, that's when I, I left. The opening, the, the, uh, and I was literally handed the pages the day of the shoot. I mean, that was the kind of, thing we were doing it was like being made up as we went along is is that partially why because uh, i know you had a hard time working with claudia christian on maniac cop 2 why her character doesn't even get a, a mention over what happened to her were you just kind of like screw her character well yeah i mean we again as i said it was an entirely different story i mean you know there was no connection to robin davi in the in the script that larry wrote for maniac cop 3 I mean, both Larry, you know, we were done with Claudia Christian and Robert, uh, and Robert Davi. It was on to new characters. And suddenly we were trying to shoehorn uh, uh, Robert, da Robert Davi into the movie, replacing this other character. And it made no sense. But to be fair, Robert Davi's a great actor, and he really did sell it, though. Robert Davi's a really good actor. The thing about Claudia Christian, you have to understand, and I, I, I know you made reference to my not getting along with her. The truth of the matter is, we told Claudia Christian, and she, and, uh, you know, when she was hired, she had the script, she knew what was in the script. She had the script, she knew what her part was. There was no, there was no, you know, she knew about the scene with the girl hanging, where she'd be hanging on the side of the car and all this kind of stuff. 
So she knew it was an active movie. It was a movie that involved her doing physical activity. Unbeknownst to me and the production and everyone, she went to the physical, as all principal actors need to do for insurance, and never told the doctor that she was pregnant. She passed the physical, she came on the movie, and suddenly she wouldn't do any of the action scene. And we didn't know why until finally it was revealed. It was revealed by virtue of her having a miscarriage on the set that she had been pregnant and never told anyone because she would have never been insurable if she had. The, the result is the film had to shut down. The, the financiers had to put more money in because it wasn't covered by insurance. Was I pissed off? Yeah, I was pissed off. And she wasn't a nice person to begin with. She was in a constant bullshit thing about how big Bobby's trailer is compared to hers. She actually had her agent or manager out there with a tape measure. I mean, it was this kind of nonsense. And on top of it, she cost the production hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that was my reasoning for, and she wouldn't do any of the action. We had to piece it together in such a way to create this illusion. I think it worked ultimately, but it made it very difficult on everybody. She just, she brought down Screen Actors Guild that we were, oh, we were going to try, we were trying to kill her. I mean, it was all kinds of nonsense, Josh. You have no idea what, what we went through. She's done it to other people. I mean, so I've, I've, I've come to learn. I, I wish I, maybe I should have done a background check on her or something, but she made our life miserable. I mean, it really, it, it, the thing is, is she was, li- she was liable for a lawsuit, and I had to, in order for her to come back, I had to actually settle with her lawyer that I wouldn't sue her for damages caused by her holding back the information of her pregnancy. And for her to come back and finish the movie. After that, well, after Mania Cop 3, actually, you did The Expert. Although, I, I, this is one that I, I've never been a big Jeff Speakman fan, so I had, this is one of your few movies I have not seen. But you're listed as uncredited director. What happened on The Expert? Oh, God. Again, it's a situation. Oh, we had a good script. It was a script written by Max Allen Collins from an idea by Larry Cohen. It was a pretty good script. To get the film financed, we needed a, a, a name in the movie that would we'd get, the, we'd get the money flowing. And uh, the thing is, Jeff Speakman had just had a movie called Perfect Weapon. I knew he was totally wrong for the movie. I knew that, the, the, that it, it, was, it was, he wasn't the right person for the movie. The movie really was, you know, the guy I wanted was Lance Henriksen. But unfortunately, Lance Hendrickson didn't have much celebrity. He was a well, he's a, he's a well-regarded actor. And, and even back then, he was very well-regarded and recognizable, but he wasn't a, a quote name, you know, for a video box. So Jeff Speakman, it was, it was either hired Jeff Speakman or the film wasn't going to get, wasn't going to move forward. So Jeff Speakman got hired. I worked on the movie. I knew it wasn't working. I knew that Jeff Speakman was totally wrong for the movie. And again, it was a situation where at some point I just kind of, I'll tell you the story. It's it's actually, it's so ridiculous you wouldn't believe it. We're shooting in the middle of the shoot. We're shooting the climax of the movie. It's in the script that Jeff Speakman is fighting with the bad guy and Jeff Speakman grabs him and throws him off a roof. 
we're all set up to do it. We're, we're that, the night of the shoot. We're all set up to shoot the scene. And Jeff Speakman wants to talk to me in his, in his trailer. What he said to me was, I can't shoot the scene as it's written. He said, it sets a bad exep- example. This is a quote, a bad example for the children of America. If I was to kill this guy, I said, what are you talking about, Jeff? He's the bad guy. You're the good guy. This is the end of the movie. If you don't kill him, who does? He goes, I know, but I, I can't, I can't do it. Can't you make it that it looks like he accidentally falls or something? But I can't be seen to be throwing this guy off the roof. So I decide I'm going to try to see if I can shoot it in such a way that I can edit it as it's written, but do it unbeknownst to Jeff Speakman. Jeff Speakman finds out through the grapevine that I was doing this, that I had done it. Not that I was doing it, I had already done it. It demanded to see the footage in the editing room. And if it is what he was told it is, he was going to kill me. Now, as dim-witted and, and as bad an actor as Jeff Speakman is, he is a martial arts expert, and I'm not. So I decided, fuck this shit, I'm leaving. This was in, we were shooting it in Nashville, and the stunt coordinator took over the last week or so of the shooting, and I took my name off of it. Have you seen the, the final released version? I tried to watch it. I thought it was awful. I knew it was awful when I was shooting it. I'm literally looking at it going, this sucks. <laughs> Yeah, just, it was so sad. Well, and then after that, you went on to do Uncle Sam for yeah. video, and that was your last directorial, you know, uh, fictional movie. You, you've done documentaries and that after that, but your last fictional movie, why, why stop in 96 after Uncle Sam when you are such a well-regarded director and you do have a very good, you have, and this is absolutely a compliment, you have a very gritty, dirty New York style no matter where the movie takes place. Thank you for the compliment. I take that as a compliment. The truth is, I started dabbling in DVD, and I got spoiled. I was my, I was back to being my own boss again. I was, I was, I was really in charge of my destination, uh, of my destiny, destination, my destiny. I, I just felt like, why go back and and be answerable to people, even on a movie like Uncle Sam. I, I, you know, I was, I, I, I was, I was being questioned about everything I was doing. You know, it just, it, it really wasn't why I wanted to make movies. I really enjoyed making movies in the 80s. I had complete freedom. For better or worse, the movies I made in the 80s, up to and including Maniac Cop 2, are my movies. For whatever good or bad they're in, that's in there. I can't blame anybody but myself. They're my films. Why was I going backwards? That's how I felt. Why am I suddenly having to explain myself to people? People who knew nothing. So it really just was a thing where I needed a break from it. I always thought to go back, but I, it just was something I, as time went on and time does fly, I guess I just got comfortable. So, yeah, Cecil, it seems like Jeff Speakman was kind of an egotistical dick, and it's kind of funny that Jeff Speakman never became the name that he wanted to be. You know, he wanted to be the next Jean-Claude or Steven Seagal, and who the hell besides us have ever heard of Jeff Speakman? I was actually really surprised because recently um, The Perfect Weapon came out on Blu-ray, and it is a bare-bones, you know, just movie release. 
that's kind of cool. You know, that, uh, that's finally coming out on Blu-ray and seems that no one cared. I didn't know that he was a jerk, but I'm not entirely surprised. He does seem like he would be a very alpha male, like the, the, the kind that you can't even deal with. Like, like Seagal was absolutely an alpha male, but He's the kind of guy who you could still, like, have drinks with. You know, he's not going to try to bang your girlfriend. Whereas Speakman does kind of seem like the guy who would, uh, who really would pull those kind of shenanigans. And, uh, so it's not entirely surprising. I don't think he had enough charisma to overcompensate for his lack of acting abilities. There's been action heroes that are not good actors, but they come across as so likable that it makes up for the fact that they're not good actors. And I think that that was the thing with Speakman was that he wasn't charismatic enough and uh he wasn't he wasn't really that good enough of an actor to really make it so you could make it through one of his movies. I mean, I think that the perfect weapon was supposed to be his big, you know, it was supposed to be his above the law. And I think it made like $5 in the theater. Kids, this is going to take you back to a different time. 1995 was a different time in the direct-to-video market, which we'll talk about more, way more next week. Lance Henriksen was who Lustig wanted for that lead role. The distributors said Lance is not a big enough name to sell. It really, 1995 is about the only period where Jeff Speakman was a big enough name to sell video boxes though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you go and you look at, uh, you know, action stars of the, of the time, like he's so far down on the list. There, there's just a, a ton of uh, action stars that uh, would come before him. There are people who love action movies that probably have forgotten about Jeff Speakman. Ken Wall would come before Jeff Speakman. What about uh, Don the Dragon Wilson? Oh, Don the Dragon Wilson, absolutely. Are you kidding? How, like, how many, uh, he was a a direct-to-video mainstay. Michael Dudikoff? The the Blood Fist. Oh, yeah, Michael, well, dude, Ikoff! All the American (laughs) ninjas and all, yeah, Dudikoff was awesome. But yeah, but Don the Dragon Wilson and uh, Dudikoff, like, I kind of, uh, I know it's a little too late now, although Don the Dragon Wilson does still look pretty decent. I I think that it would be cool, I know they were talking about it, but if they did, like, a B-movie Expendables... Where they took like Dudikoff and, and Don the Dragon Wilson and Ken Wall and, uh, other like direct-to-video action stars and did sort of their rip-off of the Expendables. I would so be on board with that. Only, only if Reb Brown is the villain. There you go. Yet sold. So after The Expert, which, like I said, is not even a real Bill Lustig movie, he had to, as you heard in the interview, he had to edit the movie very carefully and then ended up just going uncredited on that one. And then he did one more, and when I say fictional movie, because he's been doing documentaries ever since 1996, so his last fictional movie was the unique film Uncle Sam. Just when you thought it was safe to stand up and salute the flag, Uncle Sam is back with a vengeance. A Kuwaiti military unit discovered a mass grave in the desert. They positively identified the body. Jody, stay away from the coffin. You never fought for your country. You just killed for the love of killing. Now, Uncle Sam has a contract on America. Draft dodgers, watch out. Someone's been killed. Tax cheaters, beware. No one will ever burn another flag. Nobody will ever desecrate another grave. 
and no politician will ever tell another lie. And the July 4th weekend will never be the same again. From William Lustig, director of Maniac and the Maniac Cup trilogy, comes an all-new terror experience. Uncle Sam. He's a red-blooded, all-American nightmare. Uncle Sam wants you dead. I'm not the biggest fan of Uncle Sam, but it does feel like a Lustig film, and I get what he was going for. I just don't think Uncle Sam worked worked as well as it probably should have. I don't know if there were behind-the-scenes issues. I didn't ask about that. But Uncle Sam, I think, was a good idea that just needed to cook a little longer. Uncle Sam, for me, was a major disappointment because the company that did it did Jack Frost, not the Michael Keaton movie, the Killer Snowman movie. And Jack Frost was hysterical. I remember uh, it was like in Fangoria or something, and they had a page at full page ad and it was you know uncle sam i want you dead from the makers of jack frost and i remember they also uh the thing that they had with jack frost was they had the they had the cover where it was the lenticular uh motion cover where you would move it and you would see you know would change and so for for jack frost you looked at it one way and it was like a happy snowman you moved it another way and it was like the killer snowman with the teeth and everything and then they did that with jack with uh uncle sam where it was like the uncle sam poster and then you moved it and it was the rotten so i'm like oh this is gonna be great it's got it's got chef in it freaking um uh isaac hayes and it's lustig directing and it's from the guys who did uh jack frost this is gonna be a surefire hit 15 minutes into the movie i was like uh oh taking really long to go anywhere and this is just it just didn't feel right and it never really took off then finally hour into the movie Uncle Sam, the guy who was back from Desert Storm, I believe, who kind of came back from the dead and was uh, murdering people. By the time that finally happened, it was too little too late and it just wasn't done very well. And I mean, they had moments of brilliance in it, like where Isaac Hayes came out in his military garb and he was going to fight you know, Uncle Sam and just stuff where you're like, all right, this is going to be, oh, it's it's still not good. So it was a major disappointment. Again, I don't know if, uh, like you, I don't know what the deal was, if there was any kind of issue, if there was behind-the-scenes problems, but the end result was just depressingly not good. Well, that was Lustig's last, like I said, fictional movie that he directed. Lustig is extremely well-regarded within the industry. He is, okay, the reputation he has is one of the most approachable, nice guys you will ever run into as a fan. And my experience bears that out. He could not have been a nicer guy, okay? And he was so open, he he didn't hold back anything. As, as you heard in that interview, he was pretty damn open, and he even corrected me on a mistake I made during the Maniac Cop retrospective. So, you know, he is very down-to-earth, and I think that's kind of a rarity. I want Bill Lustig to direct a movie again. He he kind of stopped directing because he got into making all these, you know, blue. he got into Blue Underground, which we'll get into more next week. You know, he started doing Blue Underground and producing all these documentaries and things like that, and he is the quality control on that. You know, nothing Blue Underground puts out 
is put out without his specific okay and making sure the quality is there and all that. I still want Bill to come back and do one more film. Whether, I mean, he is producing the new Maniac Cop remake that was just greenlit with Nicholas Winding Refn. We'll have to see how that turns out. I want Bill to make one more movie. I want one more Bill Lustig directed movie in that dirty, grimy, 80s New York style of his. Could probably, like, I, I don't want one more movie out of him. I want a few more movies out of him. It's okay, I meant at least one more Bill Lustig directed film. Okay, okay. Like, it's kind of like Carpenter. Like, I don't want his last movies to be not John Carpenter movies. I really, I, I, now with him, I really just want one last hurrah. I want one more carpenter movie if i had like a hundred million dollars i would give him 10 and just be like look make a john carpenter movie like here you know and uh but with uh with with bill lustig i feel like uh he definitely could probably make a couple of more and uh it's sad that uh for whatever reason he's not uh yeah i i want uh i also want just one more genuine bill lustig movie do you think that Bill Lustig is, in the grand scheme of the exploitation field, you know, everyone talks about John Carpenter and Wes Craven and all that. Why don't they talk about Bill Lustig in those same sentences? Because I think his movies are just as important. Yet, for some reason, you know, film fandom has kind of left him behind, and I don't think that's fair. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. You never really know, uh, why something takes off over something else, especially if you get into like some really hardcore fandom where they'll talk about how, you know, this is so good. Why is this not known better? And that's the thing with, uh, with Lustig and, uh, the Maniac Cop series and stuff like that. Like it should be better known. But for whatever reason, it's not. I mean, you go to a horror convention and people would be losing their minds, but the general public just uh, doesn't get into it. I guess it's just it's not as uh, approachable as something like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, it's so much more vicious. It's not as commercial. Yeah, it's really hard to sell something like that. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I do like it, you know, his movies, is because they're just not like everything else. So I think Bill Lustig should be a bigger name. Cecil seems to agree with me. I know Peter agrees with me. Next week, we're going to talk about the direct-to-video market. And as I mentioned before, Bill Lustig runs Blue Underground. Well, Blue Underground is a big deal in the direct-to-video market nowadays. Maybe not pr producing new stuff, but in the DVD market. And so next week, we're going to talk about what happened to the DTV market. And Bill will be, will be back with us then. Cecil. Where can people contact you if they would wish to do so? You can find me over at uh, the Escape or at EscapistMagazine.com. Uh, being wrong that, about movies. I am being mostly right about movies. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you can find me over at uh, GoodBadFlicks.com as well as GoodBadFlicks on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, go watch some Bill Lustig movies tonight. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. I love living in a city!
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.